Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, A Weevee Sailor Reports Home, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. And now, on with our show. The Capitol of the United States, December 8, 1941. Today, the Congress of the United States convenes in a solemn joint session, a session that will hear the President of the United States deliver his message that will ask for a declaration of war with Japan. The House chamber, always looking small and overcrowded, has today attained a dignity that overcomes even the great girders that temporarily support the glass roof of the chamber. The galleries started filling early this morning and, of course, are now packed. To witness this historic occasion, most of the dignitaries and officials of the Capitol. At 12 o'clock, the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, called the House to order after a brief prayer by the chaplain of the House, Dr. James Sherrill Montgomery. The House passed the resolution which provided for the joint session and then recessed until the call of the chair, which is expected shortly before 12.30. The Supreme Court at this time, I believe, is walking into the chamber and the cabinet is also coming in at this time. And so after they come in, the President of the United States will arrive. And at that time, we intend to turn you over to the Speaker's platform. We'll take you now to the Speaker's platform as the President is arriving. Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague, 
delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory.
I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbonding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. That, of course, was the live recording of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivering his famous Day of Infamy speech to the Congress the day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Exactly 70 years later, to the very day, on December 7, 2011, while a member of the Department of Defense, I submitted 25 comprehensive investigative reports to the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, in an attempt to help locate the casualties who were missing in action from that attack while serving on board the battleship USS West Virginia. USS West Virginia, designated as BB-48, was a Colorado-class battleship originally displacing 33,590 tons with a length of 624 feet and an original beam of 87, correction, 97.3 feet containing a crew of over 1,400 officers and men. The West Virginia was nicknamed the Wee V by her crew. She was launched on 17 November 1921 and joined the fleet on 1 December 1923. The Wee V was reassigned from the West Coast of the United States to Hawaii in May 1940, due to growing concerns over relations with the Empire of Japan. On the morning of December 7, 1941, the Wee V was moored outside the USS Tennessee 
in berth number F6 of what was known as Battleship Row along Ford Island in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. There was about 40 feet of water beneath the keel of the Weevee as she lay at her berth. Shortly before 0800 hours, Air and Naval Forces of the Japanese Empire launched a surprise attack which concentrated on warships of the Pacific Fleet anchored at Pearl Harbor. The Weevee was struck on the port side by at least three torpedoes below the ship's armor belt. One or more torpedoes struck the ship's armor belt, and another torpedo struck the Weevee's steering gear and rudder. Additional torpedoes may have entered through holes blown below the water level by previous torpedo hits and detonated on the ship's armored belt and detonated also on the second deck as she began listing. Two aerial bombs made from armor-piercing shells also struck the USS West Virginia and caused damage even though both failed to explode. Leaking fuel from the WeeV and the USS Arizona led to massive fires in the harbor that caused serious damage to the WeeV and her crew and ultimately caused her to be ordered to be abandoned ship. Due to aggressive efforts by one of her junior officers who ordered damage control counter-flooding to prevent the ship from capsizing, the USS West Virginia settled upright onto the bottom of Pearl Harbor. The Weavey put up significant defensive fire during the attack. Captain Mervyn Binion was later awarded a posthumous Medal of Honor for his command actions. Mess Attendant 3rd Class Doris Middle from Waco, Texas was the first African-American to receive the Navy Cross when he used a machine gun to down Japanese planes during the attack. Sadly, Miller would become an MIA almost two years later when his new ship, the USS Lipscomb Bay, was sunk during the Battle of Tarawa on 23 November 1943. In the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor, an organized effort by surviving crew members was begun to locate and identify the dead from the USS West Virginia. A total of 105 men were listed as being killed on board the Weevee. The dead were transported to Halava Naval Cemetery, where they were processed, identified if possible, and later buried. Salvage of the USS West Virginia began within days of the attack, but most of the work was completed months later, between 16 March 1942 and 15 June 1942. Marine guards reported hearing tapping sounds inside the submerged hull for weeks after the attack. During the salvage operations, workers found and recovered 66 bodies of crewmen who had been trapped and died below decks as a result of the attack. The decomposed and dismembered bodies were found widely scattered throughout the ship. Several bodies were found in the after-engine room lying on top of steam pipes in an air buttle above flooded areas. The air bubble contained the bodies of three seamen, Fireman First Class Clifford Olds, Fireman Third Class Ronald Endicott, and Fireman First Class Louis Coston. They were found on the lower shelf in storeroom A-111, which was open to the forward fresh water pump room in A-109. This area remained in an airtight condition with an air bubble 
and it contained emergency rations that had kept the men alive through December 23, 1941, almost two weeks after the initial attack. These dates were verified by a marked calendar found in the compartment. As bodies were found, they were placed in heavy canvas bags made for the purpose, drawn tight at the top for closing, and removed from the ship at various times for transport to the Hilava Naval Cemetery. The salvage team constructed a patch over the damaged portions of the USS West Virginia's hull, and she was refloated on 17 May 1942 and towed to dry dock number one. The battleship left Pearl Harbor a year later on 7 May 1943 en route to Puget Sound Navy Yard in Washington State. After a massive reconstruction project, the USS West Virginia returned to the Pacific Fleet in late 1944. In late 1948, most of the bodies associated with the USS West Virginia were disinterred from the Halava Naval Cemetery and transported to the Central Identification Laboratory of the Schofield Mausoleum on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. In 1948 and 1949, the staff of the Central Identification Laboratory processed 87 unidentified remains from the WeV, and they were able to identify 47 individuals. Many of these were shipped to the mainland United States for hometown burials per the family request. Others from the USS West Virginia were buried in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, also known as the Punch Bowl, in Honolulu, Hawaii. One of the bodies found inside the Weevee was designated a lava unknown X-136. On 5 October 1948, the laboratory's esteemed anthropologist, Dr. Mildred Trotter, determined that X-136 was a white male who stood 66.54 inches tall. She estimated his weight at 115 to 125 pounds, and she stated he was in his middle to late 20s. Dr. Trotter estimated that he had died as a result of a skull fracture, and he also had fractures of the right and left pubis, the left tibia, and the left femur. Dr. Trotter estimated that he was of average build and muscularity, and she stated that, quote, the brow ridges are moderate, the glabella is depressed, the nasal bones are high and wide, suggesting a large, prominent nose, the lower jaw is medium in structure, with a somewhat pointed and prominent chin. Found on his body was one right low-cut navy shoe size 9D and also one pair of smooth leather high GI shoes size 8D. This indicated a small degree of commingling of the remains. X136 also presented a dental profile with 28 of 32 original teeth intact and there was clearly evident of prior dental work. The skeleton was approximately 85% complete. X-136 had originally been buried in a lava naval cemetery on 15 May 1942 after the salvage efforts. Unknown X-136 was transferred to the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, the Punch Bowl, and reburied as an unknown in Section Q Grave 874.
And there, the case sat without any progress for 63 long years until I picked up the file in December 2011 while a member of JPAC. The pertinent data sets for X136 described by Dr. Trotter in 1948 were added to my self-designed computerized random incident statistical correlation or risk system database that I use for all USS West Virginia casualties. The biometric data for all of the individuals who were still listed as missing from the WeV was compared to X136, and it resulted in a list of possible matches. A 21-year-old sailor from New Jersey, Fireman First Class Angelo Michael Gabrelli, was one of 25 missing American sailors who remained unaccounted for from the WeV, and he was on the list that my risk system identified as a possible match for X136. Angelo was 65 and a half inches tall, and he weighed 132 pounds when he boarded the USS West Virginia on 23 August 1940, almost a year before the fateful attack. The problem, and yes, as we have said before, all history's mysteries have a problem, or else they wouldn't be mysteries, was that Angelo's official military records listed him as 21 years old at the time of his death and not the middle to late 20s that Dr. Trotter indicated was reflected in the remains of X-136. Then, in 2017, Foundation investigators were able to use historical data obtained from other MIAs that had been identified to expand the margin of error in the risk system for height comparisons. And Fireman First Class Angelo Michael Gabrelli was quickly upgraded to a most likely match to unknown X-136 as he matched all of the other risk system data sets. On 25 October 2018, the Department of Defense announced that Angelo had been identified by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory in Dover, Delaware. Over four months later, on 8 March 2019, the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency finally admitted that Fireman First Class Angelo Michael Gabrelli was unknown X-136, just as I had predicted in my official report in 2011 and confirmed by the Foundation investigation in 2017. Welcome home, Weavy Sailor. Welcome home, Fireman First Class Angelo Michael Gabrelli. We share the joy of your family and your return to New Jersey. God bless you. And thanks to all who never forgot you and your service to our country. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to Listen Free on Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. 
dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode is titled, Cindy Finds the Map with X Marks the Spot. Two Marine buddies were killed on the same day, and both went missing. One MIA was found over 70 years later, but his buddy remained unaccounted for until, even in death, the Marine helped find his friend. You sure don't want to miss hearing how one of our Foundation researchers found a map in a long-forgotten government file that literally had the proverbial X marks the spot of the MIA's location. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them. <laughs>